Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, success in the music industry. This is episode 11. So far, we've spent a fair bit of time on this show chatting with guests about defining moments in their careers and reflecting on some of the mindsets that helped them along the way. We haven't dedicated any time, though, to actually talking about how you can create and influence these moments in your own career. Every successful career or product or even popular idea hits a pivotal moment where everything seems to change. When the concept or project goes viral and in the blink of an eye becomes commonplace. In some of my opening rants and interviews, I've referred to these moments as turning points. Sociology has a term for this moment as well, the tipping point. And the author Malcolm Gladwell has written a book by that same name. Today, I want to pull a few ideas from his book and mix them with some potentially crazy thoughts of my own to hopefully help you set yourself up for a long and prosperous career. So let's start with this. The visual you might get from the term tipping point, I think is counterproductive to what the term is referring to. In your mind, you are probably seeing a rising curve that reaches a pinnacle or climax and then rolls downward. The visual looks a bit like your career is over, which is definitely not what we're going for. You can compare it to a roller coaster where momentum builds up as your career cart is cranked up to the top and then you are unleashed down the slope and throughout the rest of the ride. That's a more positive visual of the curve, but I want to argue that the ideal curve is a bit different from that, the exact opposite, actually. I want to go back to the term that I instinctively used when I initially started this show and before I ever read Gladwell's Tipping Point. That term is turning point, and unbeknownst to me, that is a term used in coffee roasting. A close friend of mine who runs a coffee shop and roaster called Turning Point was quick to point that out to me after he began listening to the show. So while researching stuff for this opening, I've come to think that the science and the visual of the turning point in coffee roasting is actually a better analogy for your career path. For one, the graph goes up after the turning point, not down. It's basically the visual of a roller coaster, except flipped over. Right now, you're either thinking I'm crazy and jump forward to the interview, or you're asking how can starting with a downward curve possibly be a positive for your career? Well, that's where the science comes in. The graph that shows the turning point is the graph that measures the internal temperature of a roasting drum, thus indicating the bean temperature. It starts high because the drum is heated empty. Once the beans are added, the temperature drops rapidly because, well, physics. The energy that was built up in the drum as it was heated is dispersed to all of the beans. Eventually, the temperature drop stabilizes and begins to turn upward, and the temperature increases again. This is the turning point, 
and this is when the beans begin their journey to your cup. Okay, so let's get weird and compare this to a career path. What we're going to start with is where on the graph momentum, preparation, and planning falls. I'm going to argue that your goal is to build up energy in a similar fashion to the way that the drum is heated. All of the work that you are putting in on a daily basis is to reach that initial temperature. At that point, you can unleash your project or skill set into the world. What we're talking about is being sure that you are writing the best songs you can write and perfecting your craft however you can, setting goals for yourself and staying committed to them, finding your actionables and closing them out. These are all the ways that you will build momentum. Remember, all of your small actions will compound on each other and work you towards your initial starting point. And that's when you're ready for the energy transfer of your career to begin. And this is where Malcolm Gladwell's book comes into play in my reimagining of the career graph. Here's what we need to pull from his book. He describes three factors that heavily influence the point at which something, quote, tips. The first he describes as the law of the few. Basically, the idea that there are specific types of people in this world that help an idea or product break through and become mainstream. And even though they make up the minority of people, they have great influence over the masses when combined in the right way. These three types of people are connectors, mavens, and salesmen. Connectors are those people around us that seem to know everybody. We all know one. Mavens are people that take pride in going deep on topics, becoming early adopters of things, and most importantly, sharing that knowledge. Salesmen are the people that are great at persuading others to get on board with whatever they are selling. So, in an ideal situation, your project or idea would be picked up by mavens, who in turn share it with connectors who then share it with their huge network, some of whom are salesmen, and finally those salesmen convince people to get on board. So in music, this might look like a tastemaker putting your track on their radio show or playlist, Maven, to that track being picked up by larger playlists or reposted by an influencer, Connector, to superfans getting hooked on it and telling all their friends about it, Salesman. And next thing you know, you've got a hit. On to the second factor. The second factor Gladwell discusses is what he calls stickiness factor. This one, in my opinion, is very easy to grasp in music. Stickiness is basically how well something stays with a person and keeps their attention. How hooky is the melody? Do the lyrics connect with people? And is it presented sonically in a matter that holds true to the emotion of the song? The third and final factor from the tipping point is what Gladwell calls the power of context. This is the idea that people are more influenced by their environment and surroundings than they are by their nurture and personality. I think context is hugely important to music. It's probably most obviously seen in things like the various eras of protest music that we've seen throughout the years. But I'd argue that a less obvious example might be the early days of MTV. Music videos were influencing and winning over the tastes of kids despite what music their parents played around the house or in the car. So on the surface, Gladwell's book is definitely more about marketing than it is about careers. But I think you can take the broad idea of this and apply it to the momentum that you build in your career. Because at its core, the book is about influencing those around you and winning them over to your side. That is essentially what building a career is. The more people you can convert to team you through the quality of your work and dedication to your craft, the more successful you will become. So. Now, let's take all that back to the coffee roaster. You've done the work and prepared yourself for your opportunity. You are at the high point of the graph. 
the unroasted beans being added to the roaster is your moment of opportunity. Now, at this point, it's up to you to call on all of your energy reserves and start converting people to Team U. And if you understand who your connectors, mavens, and salesmen are and utilize them to your benefit, you will speed up your heat transfer, as will the quality or stickiness of your work. And finally, by presenting your work to people in a context they find authentic and can latch onto, you will only be bringing more people on board. At this point, you are descending down the slope of the graph. You are expending all of your energy doing great work, building on opportunities, and converting people to longtime fans and clients. And eventually, you will hit the turning point. The point that the beans, aka your career, in case you haven't figured it out yet, begin to heat up. It's at this point that all the hard work and energy you spent has finally paid off. The word is spreading about what you're doing and your career is on the upward growth trajectory. Now, although I set out to incorporate coffee into this opening rant this morning, this is not the opening I thought I'd end up writing. But the deeper I got, I realized that the turning point in coffee probably describes a successful career more so than most other analogies that I can come up with. Let's take one final look at the roller coaster. Some thing pulls you up to the top and then releases you on the downslope. Now you are often running on a path that you are not in control of, hence why they call it a thrill ride. And it sounds a bit like the setup for a one-hit wonder, if you ask me. Compare that to coffee roasting, where energy must be built up and then transferred to thousands of other sources, until eventually everything begins heating again and the temperature can rise. To me, that parallels a long successful career built on hard work, the type of career that I hope this show can help you build. So that's it. Probably the only time anyone will ever connect Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point with coffee roasting and building a successful career, especially on a music podcast. I'm excited for today's guest because it will be our first sit down with somebody who is deep into the business and marketing side of the music industry. Our guest is Brian Zerlinga, the general manager of the revolutionary and highly creative software instrument company Output. Brian began his career as a sales assistant for EMI, then made a short stop off in licensing before finally landing at Apogee as a marketing coordinator. His marketing experience there is what led him to end up as director of sales and marketing for Output in 2014, and then finally transitioning to his current position of general manager in 2017. So welcome to the show, Brian Zarlinga. Hey, Brian. What's going on? How you doing? Doing good. It's a nice, cool Saturday here in Los Angeles. So uh, how's everything been? We haven't talked in a while. We were catching up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's been, man, it's been a wild few months for sure for for output um, since the beginning of COVID. Yeah. We've had a lot of activity. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you guys just announced a big fundraise of what, $45 million or something like that, right? We did. Yeah. So first time ever raising money for the company. we closed last month. It's been something that's, um, it was never really the goal of the company. The, the goal was just to make really cool products. You know, over the last few years, we've been starting to think about what is the, the future here? You, you kind of have a couple paths in business. You can, you know, we have a, a great business that's profitable, great employees. You can just make some cool products and live, live life. Or, you know, you get to a point where you can be like, hey, is this, is this good or do we want to try to make this thing much bigger? And so, you know, over the last year, we kind of came to the decision of, okay, let's let's give it a shot and uh, try to make this thing much bigger, 
that requires money. And uh, so here we are. <laughs> That's an awesome philosophy because what you guys started with, with Rev, right? And you were kind of like doing amazing, unique software instruments. And then out of nowhere, you guys dropped a desk and it became like, the, the I know people that are having a hard time getting the desk, like people just buy left and right. So yep. it makes sense that you guys, that are forward thinking. It's like, I kind of, I've only been over there one time and I know a few people, but I get like a tech company influence in like how you guys operate, especially in your, your facilities really, really dope and like open floor plan with studios and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, that's definitely been a big part of the philosophy. You know, we, you're in, we operate in this music products industry, right? That is, has a lot of history and sells guitars and PAs and, you know, everything in between. And, and we kind of came in as kind of feeling like the young kid um, of maybe we can do things a little bit differently and we don't need to follow the playbook that's been written before us. And if there's something that's cool and interesting, why not explore it, which is kind of how the, the desk came about um, and how arcade came about. And so, yeah, it's been, you know, we try to operate like a professional tech company uh, <laughs> when we can. We try to operate like, you know, a company where, which we are, is a company run by musicians, you know, and, and coming from the perspective of, you know, how can we help other musicians make great music? So it's kind of this this hybrid and we, we find ourselves and which is exciting for sure. Yeah, there's, um, I guess since everybody is a musician, is part of the mindset there to find something that everybody wants and fill a gap? I mean, I guess that's kind of the way that you described it to me years ago, how the desk came about. People were frustrated with like, I can't find the perfect desk. And, you know, uh, it's such a pain in the ass sometimes to reverse a piano. So you're like, well, let's make an instrument of p reverse piano. Is that something you guys do? Like try to just fill a hole that everybody yeah, misses? 100%. It's about figuring out what are the what are the needs? Like, what do we want to make music? What's not out there? And, you know, business is much easier when you fill a gap that in a, in a need than just doing, you know, whatever one else is doing. There's, you know, we have no intention of ever making a compressor. There's, you know, that's a standalone compressor. There is a, a million companies that do that very well. Like we don't need to be in that space. So we try to fill, fill the gaps. And so, yeah, like Rev, the first product came about, Greg Learman, the, the CEO, founder, he was a film composer doing film, TV, trailers. And what Rev ended up being was a product that he wanted for himself as a composer and just started making it, which is a pretty common thing that composers do is they just get custom instruments made for them. Um, and so we went down that, that route and it kind of snowballed. And then he brought on his composing assistant to help out develop the product. And then they brought on another guy um, and to help out with contact and how to navigate all of that. And those two guys are, are Neil Halliman and, and John Nye. And, and so it snowballed to the point where he was like, well, I guess I got to sell this thing and maybe try to make some money. And then he did, and it was incredibly successful. And then now found himself, you know, that was uh, November 2013 with a, with a company uh, selling software instruments. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the, it was definitely driven out of just a, an organic need. And then each product 
after that was exactly that. Just what's needed in the industry. You know, the next product was Signal. There was, hadn't, hadn't been a software instrument purely dedicated to the pulse. And so many tracks are based on some sort of pulse. Yeah. And there's plenty of products out there that make a pulse, but not like come from the perspective of this is what I do and this is all I'm going to do. And then branching out from there. So yeah, we just try to find those those holes and um, take a creative twist to it, right? It's always rooted. Everything we do is rooted in creativity and uh, and it making it musical rather than technical. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's amazing. I want to um, we'll we'll come back to uh, come back to output because I have some other questions regarding that. But let's jump back to how you started and what your road was like to get to what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, where where do you want to begin? Like all the way back, or, or college, or uh, uh, starting? I mean, well, we you came out to LA before me. We met at Berkeley um, originally, and you were working at EMI when I was working at Capital. So we were in the same building. So let's go back to that. Yeah. By the way, I think you say I came out to LA before you. I'm pretty certain. So I arrived in LA on June 1st, 2006, and I'm pretty certain you arrived in July. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, July 4th, I rolled into town. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. were a one so, month yeah. veteran though. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I remember that summer we were at, uh, you know, there were a bunch of Berkeley alums. We just started hanging out. We we're like a bunch of newbies in LA trying to figure this thing out. Um, yeah, you know, at that time, so I when I moved to LA, my real intention initially was to work for a music publisher. That was kind of, you know, as you go through college, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do and try to find some kind of focus that was the focus that I decided to, to move on. So I got two internships in LA uh, right after graduation. One was with Riptide Music Publishing, uh, which is a very small music publisher that really has a lot of a lot of um, lesser known composers that are very successful, right? Like people that make tracks that are in a ton of TV shows, ton of trailers, and it was a very cool little company. And then also Chrysalis Music Publishing, which was much bigger had a lot more like mainstream acts and very cool indie bands. So I interned there in the summer, you know, as your internship comes to close, it's like, what am I going to do? <laughs> Interviewed a bunch of places. EMI ended up hiring me. I knew someone from Berkeley, uh, his name's Matt Maltese that was working there. He helped get my resume at the top of the pile, which is how, you know, many of these things go. <laughs> ended up as a uh, sales assistant to the Western region sales team. So that team was at the time was responsible for all of the sales uh, operations for retail stores. So it brings us back to CDs. You know, there was Tower Records and they would go into Tower, make sure all the CDs are set up correctly. They would buy, you know, end cap promotions, put on in um, what they call them in-store performances and bring artists around, give people tickets. And I was kind of the assistant between them. And it was everyone from Chicago West. And I lasted there about 10 months, you know, when when you and I were there, I mean, EMI and Capital were going through quite a transition of being bought by Terra Firma. And there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. And um, a job opened up at Chrysalis Music Publishing, 
which I had interned at and as a licensing assistant. And so they hired me. I went over there. Pretty much you're the person filling out con licensing contracts. The, the head of licensing would give you the basic details. This artist, uh, this is the, the sync. This is how much it's going to be for. Here are the general details. And I would go into a template and fill it out and, uh, and send it. It was not the job I wanted. Like, I quickly realized that was not for me. Like, amazing company. Ultimate busy work. Ultimate. Like, I literally had four foot piles of paper on either side of my desk. And those were, that was to do. And like, every day they were just putting more pieces of paper on top of that pile. And, you know, it was such a cool company because they had, at the time, it was like, they had just signed Black Keys. Black Keys were not really that known. They had Outkast, they had Blondie, David Bowie, um, TV on the radio, like some really, really cool bands. And so it was one of those things where it was like, man, I love being here and hate the job. And uh, three months in, I, I walked into the my boss's office and said, I don't think this is for me. And she goes, yeah, I don't think so either. So <laughs> we, uh, I was like, I'll hang out until you find someone and then I'm going to go. And so that's what I did. That was the beginning of 2008. And um, then I just started looking for jobs and had no idea where, where I was going to end up and saw on Craigslist a, a marketing coordinator job at Apogee Electronics. And I was like, oh, interesting. This kind of like marries my two passions in a way like I've, I've really enjoyed the business side of, of music but I love recording I've been recording since I was 14 you know went to school for recording and interviewed there got the job and then I ended up there it was almost seven years in the marketing department and uh yeah and then that that led me to output if you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. While you were at Apogee, that was like a... This was like a big years. Wasn't those like duet and quartet years? And there was like some big changes that you guys rolled through while you were there. Yeah, I kind of felt like it was, you know, in hindsight... I really think it was a, a heyday for the company. You know, when I when I joined, it was duet, but it was the silver, the original duet. Okay. Um, and shortly after I started, they started designing and working on duet two, which was really awesome. Like, you know, then they well, they were also working on Symphony IO, what would become Symphony IO. They were working on one. Um and my boss, the director of marketing there, actually did all of the industrial design of the products. So he would be like, although he was running marketing, he was at the computer next to me working on the actual, like, what are these products going to look like and where should things go? And, and so like he and I would just sit there and 
be like, hey, do you think the headphone jack should be on the right or left? And it'd be like, oh, well, you know, like I kind of feel like if your hand's here, you want the headphone to be over here. And it was really cool. And I mean, we were, yeah, I mean, Apogee was the total upgrade, right? You were, if you wanted better sound, you went to Apogee. And it was like, a, it was a really good time. You know, we moved from the 16Xs to the Symphony IO, which just was blowing people away. Um, so it was fun. It was definitely, it was a lot of fun. Were there things that you were like plucking out that you really learned, like watching these product launches that you would carry on with you? Yeah, I mean, we were, so I think one of, one of the things that always amazed me was I would be on like the NAM booth for Apogee and people kind of, Apogee had a, had a name for itself where people assumed we were like the same size as Avid and Avid was like, 2000 employees and Apogee was like 30. And, and so the company was really small and to do these product launches, you know, if, for anyone who's never been involved in a product launch, probably does not realize like the absolute undertaking it is, um, to put together a website with all the images and think through the, all the copy and how is it, how are you going to promote it? And do you have all those assets for the social media and, um, you got to talk to the press and get review units out to them. And it's a huge undertaking. And so it was definitely, I mean, it was me and four other people really like working on, you know, like spending all night long working. You know, there was one the, the launch of the one, uh, which is their like single channel interface. I went to Nam, set up the booth, went back, got to back to the office around like six or 7 PM. And then we worked until 7 a.m. and launched the one. Then I went home, slept for like two hours, and then drove back down to NAM. And then we like worked the NAM booth. Like it's wow. It's crazy. And so like when you have such a small team, you really dig in and, and learn, you know, the 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 ways to do things, what works, what doesn't work. And and that's really I think what helped me uh, when I arrived at output and we had to release products and create a full plan and, and do it myself. Cause at that time in the beginning, early days of output, it was just me and marketing. Right. That's, is there, um, I, I want a tangent a little bit just because you, you kind of touched on it. If you have any insight that can like demystify marketing or like make it not feel dirty to people, I feel like it's the average musician's absolute downfall. Could, could you compare like a product launch to my record or, uh, like maybe your friend's podcast or something like, could you help a homie out here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, so I think, I think when it comes to music, musicians have a hard time thinking of their music as a product. Agreed. And at the end of the day, that's what it is, right? You have to treat it. It is a product. You are trying to sell it. And if you think of it as your, like your creative baby, when going out to marketing, you're, you're kind of setting yourself up to maybe not fail, but run into some challenges. I think that is like a fundamental thing, mindset that can set people apart. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of marketing, you know, so much of it, it's about storytelling and it's about selling a product. But the root of it is how can I create an emotional reaction in someone that gets them to create some sort of action, right? So I want them to 
you know, fall in love with my music to where they then uh, save the album on Spotify. Like, and, and identifying whatever that goal is is key, right? Like, what is the end goal that I want? What is the action I want them to take? Is it to buy? Is it to download? Is it to buy a ticket to a show or whatever it is? Um, and then what is the emotional reaction that gets them there? And that starts to, when you peel it back from that direction, I think you start to um, understand, okay, well, in order to create that reaction, like, for me, it would require X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, like, I think an artist, whatever it is, like, they could be really uh, vulnerable on social media. And that would get me to identify with them, and they share their story, and then, you know, or, I don't know. You know, like they uh, have great design, right? Their album work's amazing. Like their their entire package, visual package is so well put together that I am interested in, in being a part of what they're doing. And I think one thing that's worked for Output is design, right? People always comment on our, our design process and mm -hmm. just like the overall aesthetic of the company. Um, I think marketing in general no matter the product you're selling, if the design isn't good, people kind of start to dismiss it, right? Like pro graphic design goes a huge way psychologically for someone. I think that that's really, really key. But it's all about creating that emotional reaction, which is what the design does. And Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's going back to earlier, you, I feel like from what you were saying earlier, output has really tapped into like, what they authentically want to put out in the world and the reasons behind it. And I also think that there's got to be a layer of that. Like you can market something, um, but I think you your marketing message, like you said, needs to get an emotional reaction, but I also think that it needs to be authentic to your project. You know what I mean? Because I think that's what 100%. sells people initially is, you know, like I, I've said this before, so apologies to my listeners, but it's like if two pop songs are basically the same chords and the same track and similar melody it's like why is one a hit and one's like not it's because something about that hit was was more real for more people you know 100 percent. there's plenty of companies you know in the music product space that don't do that right and you can kind of feel it like it feels like they're constantly trying to just sell you on something or constantly discount it to give you something that you may or may not want and it's you know like 20 bucks today and it's usually it was 150 bucks yesterday so yeah why not you know it's like a different kind of a different mindset <laughs> so yeah. uh we, i i completely agree uh all right so let's so i i just i just wanted to get that out there because i feel like so many people just fail at marketing themselves or their product or their idea or whatever it is uh let's jump back on your on your road so did uh did greg come to you or did you did you find the job listed somewhere for output so it was kind of organic. Um, Greg and I have a mutual friend and would see each other, you know, once or twice a year at like birthday parties uh, for a couple of years before I joined Output. You know, it's the, the situation where you're at a birthday party and someone comes up to you and it was like, hey, meet Greg. He's a music guy. Brian's a music guy. You guys should talk. <laughs> and so as the two music people in the party, we would just like hang out in the corner and, and chat and then... So it just kind of like became an organic thing. And then once Output launched, it was like November 2013, 
December, I don't exactly remember how it happened, but, but Greg emailed me and said, hey, why don't you just come by my studio and let's hang out. So I went by and hung out with him and Neil. And um, we just talked about the product industry and my experience at Apogee and just kind of giving them feedback on what they could be doing as like a brand new company. How can you get this brand new product out into the world? It was really just a casual hang. And then about five months after that, Greg emailed me and said, hey, I've, uh, I now have enough money to hire you. Do you want to come work at Output? And um, yeah, you know, it was kind of a scary moment of like, you know, I've been at Apogee for a long time. Um, I've been thinking about, okay, what is next? Uh, but I have an offer from a company that is brand new, right? Like that's like, there's the whole thing. Like, uh, you, know, you can hear parents say, uh, like a startup is not really um, re a reliable choice for your future, <laughs> maybe. Like it could crash and burn. Yeah, but, but you're already a musician, so. Yeah, yeah, there you yeah, go. You've yeah. already rolled the dice. So, <laughs> but so yeah so it was a moment of like all right i can hang here and keep doing what i'm doing there really wasn't much uh i don't think of a, a future or like future growth at apogee at that point um you know everyone above me they weren't leaving so it's kind of like okay i guess i could roll the dice here and see what happens and this might have more upside than um hanging out so that's what i did i Took a chance. That's awesome. So you you got to, like you said earlier, uh, you got to start from scratch, basically. Rev was out, right? So there was already kind of a brand and an image. Yep. So then you just jumped into how do we get this product into more hands? How do we meet more people? How do we get that emotional reaction you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. So the, my first day at Output, met with Greg. We were working out of his studio. He, he had a studio, like composing studio in in Hollywood. And we actually ended up, we were there for a few years and we ended up having like 15 people working all over his studio at, by the end of it. Had, they like, people were literally working underneath the stairs inside the closet. I was in the kitchen for two years. Um, and until we finally like had like our legit office. But uh, at that time, so that my first day, I'm in Greg's studio and he's like, he had a full list on a whiteboard. These are all the things we need to tackle. Number one, he's like, you need to become a Facebook ads expert in a week. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and that moment always sticks out because it was, you know, I, I don't, at that time, Facebook advertising wasn't really, it was kind of new, um, especially in the music products world. People weren't pumping money into Facebook ads at that time. They were yeah. still putting in print ads into Sound on Sound and Tape Op, and which still exists, but that was really the only form of advertising. Um, and output in that in their you know young six months had had a lot of success with Facebook ads, and he was like, "I need someone that can like really dive in deep here." So that's what I did, um, and that's what really built the company. We had a philosophy of, hey, if I put a quarter in and get a dollar out, let's just keep pumping quarters into the machine. So, you know, that's we just went hard, learned as much as we could on how to be real Facebook experts. And then also, you know, I was working on all the traditional stuff. How can we 
get endorsers. We're brand new. How can we you know, get the industry to get behind this thing? Um, the press, you know, go to. The, I had long relationships with Sound on Sound and Tape Op and Music Tech and all those different companies create digital music. Go to them and be like, hey, I'm at this new company. We have this really cool product. Can, can you write about us? You know, like, and go down that route. Um, so it was really just like the early days, just throwing stuff at the wall, see what sticks. Yeah. And uh, Facebook was sticking. I do remember there being a lot of social ads in the early days, right, when you switched over there. Yeah. I do you remember that being a thing? Did you Even today. You come to our website and you are, uh, we got you. <laughs> it's a, that's like a, that's a retargeting move, right? Isn't isn't that what, what exactly. that would be? Yeah. I, I've, yep. I've read, read some books, listened to some podcasts. <laughs> um, <laughs> so did you guys find, I mean, this this probably, are, we're, we're going to have some listeners check out here. Uh, did you find that like Facebook would shift its algorithm and you guys had to like relearn what was working or once you really mastered it, was it consistent? Um, basically, yeah. That was happen all the time. It wasn't as dramatic of a change when they would change it. It was it was changing constantly, but it was not. Oh, I need to go back and and rethink or relearn how this all works. Um, so it was more like we changed the algorithm. Like what worked today is not necessarily working tomorrow, and so I need to shift it. And what would actually happen is the algorithm is smart enough where if you do the same thing over and over, it will say like, hey, you, it'll stop basically pushing out your ads. So you constantly need to, it'll say like, hey, you need to change your ad creative. It won't tell you this, but like you have to learn the, the idiosyncrasies of advertising on Facebook and be like, oh, why is my performance suddenly down? And then you're like, oh, maybe I should change the ad, like what it says and what the graphic is. And you do that and suddenly you, you come back to life. Um, <laughs> And seems unfair. The, or it would make, yeah. I mean, it's it's a con like Facebook, Google, all that stuff. Like, it is a daily thing that you need to stay on top of. Um, they also change how they report results. They change. Um, there's often just like a lot of little things. Uh, if you decide to just not advertise, like say you've been advertising for a month, it's been going well. You turn it off. You're like, yeah, I'm gonna pull back. And then a couple months later, you come back and turn it back on. You're not going to get that same performance you had in month one. You're starting from absolute scratch and need to rebuild it up and get the algorithm to be like in comfortable with your techniques and the ad creative. And it's like a whole life form. It's crazy. like, <laughs> And that's why people have full careers just managing Facebook ads. That is, I mean, I don't think people realize how much power it's only in the recent, recently in a few last few years that I've seen articles about the amount of money that people are pumping into Facebook ads and the amount of money they're making because of it. And you're just like, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize that this thing had taken on so much influence. It's like, it's really kind of mind blowing. It, it really is. I mean, in terms of musicians and, you know, putting out an album, there is, if, if you're willing to put in a few hundred bucks, and potentially lose it's a gamble you, you might lose it but if you spread you know a few hundred bucks over a couple months and had really great ad creative an action that was clear it could really work for you and you could make that money back easily 
And I think if you even have the goal of if I break even, it's okay. I'll get more listeners. I'll get more exposure. The hard part is like, what are you selling and how are you getting that money back is probably what's harder for artists. But it's a super powerful tool. It's super effective. You just got to pay attention to it and dive in. You can't be a tourist, you know, and just kind of like dip your toes in. You got to dive in um, in order for it to work. There's uh, there's something you've mentioned a couple times that maybe listeners are not familiar with, but essentially you're you're referencing a clear call to action, like on yeah. all of your ads. Can you um, just a quick summary to some of our our non advertising hip uh, listeners? What uh, what what sure. do you mean by that, and why would you do that? Yeah, so call to action, or the acronym is CTA. If you hear people talk about your CTA, basically, in order for an ad to be effective, you need to have, like what we talked about earlier, you need to have an end goal. What do you want the person who's viewing that ad to do in order for you to determine that that ad is successful? It could be as easy as I want them to visit my website, right? We can take that example. So you put an ad on Facebook, and when I say Facebook, you know, Facebook is is what it is. Instagram is really probably the dominant player these days in the Facebook network. It's it's so when I say Facebook, I mean both. So you, if you want to go to your website, you want to take bring people to your website. You're going to have an ad, and you need to have a call to action to tell them visit this page, right? Click here, learn more. Um, something that ha- says to them. Oh, if I click this, I go here. Or if I, you know, if I click this, I will get X. Or another call to action is enter your email, right? I want to get as many email addresses as I possibly can. Like you could have two call actions. So you could have um, an ad that gets them to the website for, hey, get a free song. Uh, And it brings them to the website. Then it's, hey, enter your email in order to get the song. That is a second call to action. So yeah, it's just, it's kind of guiding the user to what you want them to do. And if you don't do that, you're typically not going to have the results that you want because people need to be guided. (laughs) They need to be told (laughs) what to do. Yeah. uh, Perfect. You summed it up perfectly. But do you find, I don't know uh, if you've compared these, you must have, if you're an aspiring uh, up-and-coming artist or band or something, do you think having a well-defined mailing list is going to be more valuable than the amount uh, of ad ads you you spend? I guess, do you see a correlation between mailing list subscribers being more powerful than uh, advertising? Yes, 100%. The reason being is... Once you have your mailing list, once you get people onto that mailing list, it's free to communicate with them. Like with advertising, you have to continue to pay to get them to do whatever you want to do. So you can pay advertising, you can pay $100 in advertising, get a bunch of people on your email address or on email list, and then just start sending them emails for years to come. If they don't unsubscribe, they'll get your emails and it's free. So it's 100% the more cost-effective way people still read emails it's very effective um it's 100 
like the ultimate currency, right, is, is your email list. And that's like we work like output. We work really hard to build that list. Like in the early days to build that list, we did, we created a bunch of free loops and it's still available on our website today. There was like, I forget how many loops, but it was a, a few hundred and I have they're them. cool. They, yeah, yeah, it's, they're, they're, they sounded great. They're useful. You had to put in your email address and you got to download. And I think in, you know, we advertised that the hell out of that thing. We brought in like 60,000 people in a week to download that thing. Oh, wow. It was incredibly successful. And today people still do that. And we do, and we continue to do a variety of things to build our email address. We give, um, if you buy a Personas uh, piece of hardware, there it's the audio interfaces, and I believe they just expanded to the controllers. They have this really cool bundle where they got a bunch of cool brands across the industry to give free plugins. So there's it's like Output, Isotope, Brainworks, uh, a few others, and you get this great little bundle. And it's people that are new to music. They're they're you know Personas. They they spend like a hundred bucks for an interface and then they can get the introduction of a bunch of plugins for us it we give them movement um which is one of our effects and it brings in a ton of people to just like and then we get their email address and they get in their web and they might sign up for arcade they might you know buy a desk they might not do anything um but it's super easy for us it's free you know and that can generate a lot of revenue for us or, you know, if it's a musician, a lot of streams, whatever it may be. Yeah, well, I didn't think about it until you said it. You said people are just getting in and they're buying their first interface and you're finding a way to put your name in front of them in their influential, like, first six months and, you know, they're buying all their new gear and what am I finding? So it's like you're not, at that point, you're you're solely getting new business to a certain extent, which is genius. It's great. Yeah, and we're finding with Arcade, it's a lot of people are brand new to music. It's an interesting, you know, we ask people what their uh, proficiency is. You know, are you a pro? Are you a hobbyist? Are you brand new? We're bringing a lot of people that are brand new because especially since the pandemic, people are at home, they're interested in making music and more people are making music than ever. And so... Like arcade has got a, you know, a lot of pros that are using it every day, and then there's people that like literally don't know what a DAW is, and we need to educate them on how to make their first track, right? So yeah, it's it's a big part of what we do to bring people in. Do you have any thoughts on? I think this applies a little bit more to like engineers and producers, um, the power of word of mouth, and and like what the value is in that. Like how much of that do you put into a marketing plan? Do you expect people to turn around and, and promote the product on their own time and be like, hey, have you, have you used Signal? Have you used um, movement? It's not, word of mouth is something you hope for. It's really hard to control mm. or really make it your, your focus, right? Like I think word of mouth is more of an extension of your brand do people identify that you're with your brand? Do they like your brand? Do they want to support you? Do they think the product's really cool? That then they want to share it with a friend. So 
trying to control word of mouth um, is near impossible. But you can do it in ways where you can focus on, all right, we, you know, our brand for output, like our brand is incredibly important to us. What is that? It's like great design, creativity. We try to be, like said earlier, musicians that are trying to help other musicians. Um, we like to focus on creativity, not on tech, right? Although the tech is there, but the, the main focus is how can we get you making great music as quickly as possible? Streamline your workflow. And I think people start to identify with the brand. One, one thing that I think helped word of mouth was our desk because that was a, it's really helped the brand. It was so unexpected that a software plugin company would make a piece of furniture. You know, like it, I think the expected thing is like make a, a keyboard controller. And we went in a completely different direction. And like you mentioned, I mean, the desk has been super successful. It's hard to get right now because we're, there's a, a backlog. And I think because it was a unique product that was actually needed by musicians, you know, that's, that's why we made it. It was, you know, I wrote a blog for the output site, like in 2015 of our favorite desks. And the whole concept of that blog was purely to get people to the output website. For, for us, there's a direct correlation. You have the more website visitors, the more money you make. Uh, so let's get more people to the website. And so part of that is offering interesting content. So I wrote a blog about our favorite desks to do that. I had to research what desks were out there. We discovered there was the $200 thing from Guitar Center that's maybe not the most attractive desk in the world and maybe a little bit shaky or like Argosy and like anything like $1,500 and up. There's nothing in between. So most people are buying Ikea stuff and hacking it together. So we're like, well, if we made a cool desk made out of wood that's in the $500 to $1,000 price point, maybe this would be successful. So we just threw it out there, made it. We happen to have someone on staff that is a that makes hardware. He was. We had another project that we ended up uh, canning, and and then he had time, and we're like, hey, let's figure out a desk. But that action, I think, created the word of mouth around our brand. It was like, hey, you got to check out Output. They're doing something completely different than any other company out there. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that own our desks that know nothing about our software. There's people that <laughs> own our software and know nothing about our desks. It's our job to educate them. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, for word of mouth. You just try to do those for us, like those unique, unexpected things, or you try to really focus on your brand uh, and getting people to be passionate about you rather than very passive or, you know, they're not that excited. They like your product is kind of helpful, but not <laughs> that, you know, like I don't love the, the, the company. We want to be the opposite. So, yeah, I mean, that's I think those things are very much tied word of mouth brand. And yeah, the, the desk is a good example of that. It's kind of funny now that now that you say it, I think you almost like gave somebody something to talk about when you guys put a desk out. I, I remember being like in a session and being like, do you guys see that output made a desk? And then everybody in the session just pulls their phone out to look at the output desk. And that right there, just in the shock value of it, you get like five website views and one person remembers that they forgot to buy the new instrument or they want to buy the desk. So it's, it, 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 I could definitely totally. see that panning out in, uh, in your favor. 
Yeah, and then and we're now, you know, we have a pair of speakers coming out. Oh, we yeah. partnered with Barefoot. And those are coming out in the next couple months. Um, COVID kind of slow, <laughs> slowed down the, the manufacturing process. But that was another thing of like, hey, let's partner with a great brand and make a speaker. Like it's kind of it's unique. It's different. Not, you know, complements what we do. It's not directly tied to what we do. Like we are, you know, we think we're, we're a software company really at the core. But we like to make great products regardless of what what you know they are and partner with great people and so yeah you know that's another another piece of hardware that's coming that is i think kind of a little unexpected no it's cool it's cool i i wanted uh we don't have a lot of time yet left but i wanted to touch on you've moved from marketing to general manager so i don't know exactly what you do on a day-to-day basis but i would imagine you probably have some insight on like the journey of like idea conception through release do you are there any tips for people of like really progressing an idea or a, an album or a concept like from start to finish and do you guys set goals do you guys have dates and markers like what are some of the non-proprietary things you can share with us yeah so it's an interesting question the um the conception process it's really about okay for us let me think of this through it's we have an idea in order to understand if that idea is any good you need to kind of flush it out on paper right of what what is this thing who is it for you're basically you write a spec um what does it do who is it for what are kind of the main features and you kind of just think it through of what this thing is and why we're going to make it um then when you decide yeah i'm going to do this i'm going to do this project it's 100%. You got to set milestones for yourself, project manage the hell out of it. You got to like, you. it's a ton of work. You know, for us, it's kind of, uh, now we have so many people in the process to help us get one thing to the, from point A to point B. Trying to think back to like, if you're, you know, only have a couple people, you got to be willing to wear a lot of hats. You got to set goals for yourself. You got to set milestones. You got to be will- willing to do anything. Right. And so like my job as general manager is literally like figuring out anything that comes to us. And typically it's things that we've never tackled before. So, you know, like I'm handling HR and finance. I've, that's not my background. I'm handling, uh, the support team reports to me, the hardware team reports to me. And my job often falls into like chief problem solver, you know, Hey, uh, there's a new data privacy law in California. What does that mean? Do we need to do anything? How do we handle that? Uh, and you just go figure it out. Like none of us are data experts, you know, like, and you go find experts to help you out. Um, so I think it's one, it's making sure that you can wear, that you're okay with wearing a bunch of hats, diving deep in and setting goals for yourself, having a deadline. It's number one, like, and try not to, and have a realistic deadline. In the past, we've fallen in the pitfall of setting unrealistic deadlines to, to try to get people to move faster. And that's actually not that effective. Um, so <laughs> you, you gotta set realistic deadlines for yourself. Um, yeah, just uh, that's really the main thing is try to set your own expectations to get it out. 
Do you think that if there's somebody who is in a mainly creative path, that they can have a big effect on what they're doing if they're willing to put on some of these like goal-oriented milestone like business glasses? Because I feel like creatives will fight it. Yeah, I, I would guess that some of the most successful producers out there or, music or artists are a bit of both. Right, like they they set they're they're creative, but they set those goals, milestones. They're very organized. Yeah, you know, there's um, there's stories of like Taylor Swift having a spreadsheet of how her album release is going to go, like six months before it comes, like while she's recording it. Like it's she's telling the label, you know, like this is what's going to go on. I don't know how much truth is to that, but like it kind of like illustrates of someone who is goal oriented. You, you need to do the work you're to, you need to put in the work and i would just you know of course there are creative types that get other people around them to do everything but i would say probably today where not everyone's on a major label to to do all the work for them um the ones that are most successful are doing that setting goals being organized and project managing uh which is basically like setting up a bunch of tasks what are you know, and then completing those tasks. Like there's a bunch of tasks to get to a goal and you right. complete those tasks. And then when you're done, you should be at your goal. So yeah, I think organization is definitely key. Yeah, I've found uh, over the last couple of years, I've I've tried to, to kind of do a lot of that stuff. And I feel like I almost, to a certain extent, it's set my creativity free because if you can offload all of these organizational things into like a system that you're committed to and a system that... Um, that you believe will, you know, work and like get your album out or push you forward or whatever. When it comes time to go into creative mode, you're not worried about when you're going to finish the song or what your art is going to be because you've you've placed you've you've given all of those things proper space outside of your creative realm. Anyway, that that's that's how I've found that. I mean, obviously, engineering and mixing is creative in a different manner than um, than writing a song, but. Um, I find that I'm more creatively free the more business-minded things that I apply to my life, at least for me. Yeah, and it's a balance too, right? Like no one's saying that you have to be business-minded while being creative. Right. Right, they don't have to be happening at the exact same time. You can have that creative space and and that creative moment. And then when you're not doing that, to put the business hat on, and figure out, okay, what are the things I need to accomplish here to, to get to that goal? Yeah. Um, and then when that's over, you go back to being creative. Right? Yeah. So since we're talking about goals, um, you know, in closing, I like to ask people what their current big goal is, whether it's, you know, a Brian goal or it's an output goal. Is it what's your big goal right now that you can share with us? And what's the first thing you're going to do to uh, go towards it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll speak on the output front. So we, we just raised all this money, um, which is a scary thing. It's like exciting and scary. You know, a big goal is to build a team that is, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're in this moment of like a lot of growth and you need to build a team to do all the things that you need to do. But my number one goal is doing that while still operating as output, still being us, still having 
uh, great personal relationships, a great culture in the company, being a place where people really want to go to work every day, you know, especially being remote, like wanting to sit down and do the work that they're doing and are excited about making great products for musicians. So really a, a big goal for me is, is that is to make sure that we are successful in this growth and we remain the company that we really want to be and who we are at, at the heart. Cause if people enjoy what they're doing and what they're building, it, it will show in the product and the brand and everything else we do. So as, yeah, it's kind of like the, the general marriage of the company like that is, that's paramount for me right now. Um, to get it done, really what we're, it is kind of going back to organization, like it is a full exercise and like re reorganizing yourself, making sure that you have all of your ducks in a row in order for that to be successful, where it's hiring people, making sure that everyone that's being hired is being, all their needs are being met. It's, it's a big challenge, but yeah. Um, step one, I think is for me to remain calm, <laughs> remain uh, level-headed and, uh, you know, make sure that everyone else is, um, taken care of. I like it. It's good. I, I think that's, uh, that's what I took away from our conversation is that y'all are very committed to, uh, your culture and what you want to do. And I think that everybody should take that away from this conversation that if you want success of whatever path you're on, you need to commit to like what you believe you want to do. Yeah. If you believe it, other people will believe it. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's, you have to believe it's it like, first. It's cheesy, but it's, it's, yeah, it's totally cheesy, but it's so true. Yeah. You, you have to really believe it yourself. Yeah. Awesome. Well, do you want to, uh, people obviously can find the output website. Do you want to tell people exactly where it is, how they can find you, how they can find the products? Yeah, sure. So output.com, um, arcade is our, you know, our subscription product that has a 30 day trial. You can sign it up for it and just kind of play around and see what it's all about. Um, but yeah, out, anything output.com, Instagram.com slash output, uh, all that good stuff. Awesome. Well, there'll be uh, links to that in the show notes. Brian, thank you so much, dude. This was really enjoyable. I love this. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Really yeah. appreciate it. And so that's it. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening. Please like and share and subscribe. Do all the things. And don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. And if you're interested in getting that Progressions Coffee Mug from Turning Point Coffee Roasters, place an order at their website, turningpointcoffeeroasters.com, and use the code PROGRESSIONS. We'll see you next week.